where we continue on in our studies of Romans chapter 10, and I would invite you to turn there to your Bibles, and in just a second or two, we're going to read from verse 4. Verse by verse through Romans, here we are. There's a part of me that thinks this could be, part of this will be so liberating for us if, if I, with God's help, get it right and you, with God's help, listen well. So we'll leave it at that. Verse 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses wrote this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Let's let's pray together. Father, um, we look to you now for everything and specifically for the help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our weakness and teach us from your word. And Father, I imagine as we were listening to those latter verses, many of us remember that great merciful moment when your grace came and we said yes to Christ by faith. So Father, it's right in Christ's name to thank you for our salvation, what you saved us from, how you saved us, what you saved us to, and for all that we have, for all that is promised, not only now, but what is promised past death. And so God, glorify yourself as your word is preached. For Jesus' sake, we we ask this sincerely, God. Amen. In this past Tuesday's New York Times online edition, I came across an op-ed piece which surprisingly was written by a gentleman named Tom Coughlin. So if you're a National Football League fan, you know the name if, if not, he was the coach of the New York Giants. He coached them to two Super Bowl wins, both to a team I like, the Patriots. And he was really good at what he, what he did. The title of the piece he wrote was, Nothing Could Prepare Me for Watching My Wife Slip Away. And here's some of, here's some of what I read. Someone recently asked me why my wife Judy isn't at any of the photo photos from, or is it in any of the photos from our foundation events? And it was with a heavy heart that I had to explain for the past year, I've been torn between protecting my wife's dignity and privacy and sharing some deeply personal sad news. As so many of you are gearing up for another NFL season, 
I will be sitting far from the sidelines at the bedside and holding the hand of my biggest supporter, my beloved wife, the mother of our children, and grandmother to our grandchildren. After several years of doctors trying to pinpoint the disease that has been slowly taking her from us, Judy last year was diagnosed with progressive supranuclear palsy. This is a brain disorder that erodes a person's ability to walk, to speak, to think, and to control their body movements. It steals memories and the ability to express emotion and sadly is incurable. Our hearts are broken. Judy has been everything to our family. For the past four years, we've helplessly watched her go from a gracious woman hugging every person she met and making people feel they were the most important person in the room to losing almost all of her ability to speak and move. Judy's decline has been nothing but gut-wrenching and has, been placed, has placed me in a club with tens of millions of other Americans who serve as a primary caregiver for a loved one. It's not easy, but taking care of Judy is the promise I made 54 years ago when she was crazy enough to say, I do. A friend said to me, we don't get to choose our sunset, and that's true. But I am so blessed to get to hold Judy's hand through hers. Now, it's, that's hard to read for me. And what would you think after hearing that if someone said to Tom Coughlin, Jeepers Creepers, Tom, why don't you just leave Judy? I mean, she just lays there. She does nothing. She basically cannot walk and speak and think and control her body movements. Memories are gone. She can't really meet your needs, Tom. Not your emotional needs, Tom. And not your physical needs, Tom. She can't work. She's basically dead. Just break it off. What would you think of that person? And if you were Judy, what kind of husband would you want? A husband whose foundation, what drives the relationship, would be based on Judy's work? Or... Husband, a marriage, a relationship, any relationship based on, founded on, centered on, relying on grace. Indeed, and I want you to get this word in your vocabulary, unlimited grace. And let's go further. Knowing you as only you do, what kind of God would you want in relationship to you? When you were dead in your sin, Colossians 2.13, incapable of responding to God, the, the, the spiritual equivalent of progressive supranuclear palsy, God made you alive with Christ. God forgave all your sins, and he, in Christ, utterly wiped the damning evidence of all your broken laws and all the commandments you ignored, which hung over our head, and he has completely permanently dismissed it, triumphing over our disobedience by the cross. Three points this morning. Two ways to live, two professions to make, three graces to enjoy. I hope I get to the last point. I'm going to give it my best. (laughs) Number one, two ways to live. Verse four, do you see it in your Bible? Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Way number one, 
Way number two, verse five, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. All right, two ways to live. One is by complete, comprehensive law keeping. The other is by faith in Christ. Now, for some people who do not understand the gospel and therefore they don't understand God, they hear that and they might say, what's the difference? God and rule keeping, that's like hand in hand, bread and butter, cheese and crackers. What is the difference? Well, the Bible's prepared to tell us there is an immeasurable difference because this is much more than just two ways to be saved, but two ways to live, two ways to choose from as a way of life. Because you see, and I want you to know this, if you look at verse 5, that's written in the future middle indicative. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it's a very fancy way of saying, whichever lane you go down, right, whatever lane you choose, that will be your way of life, your whole way of life. This, that will be indicative of your life and how you live it before God and before others and before yourself now and in the future. Two ways, a righteousness that is based on you being able to constantly keep God's law, to constantly keep the commandments, or the righteousness that is by faith in Christ who kept the law perfectly on your behalf. Now, hold that for a minute. I want you to consider this theme of righteousness by law keeping or doing good versus the righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to see how that is that theme is all over the Bible and, and especially the New Testament. So if you're thinking, oh, here he goes again with righteousness by faith, just bear with me. Romans 1 to 8, all of it is specifically writing on the theme of justification by faith. And all of the morality that's tied, we'll get to in Romans 12, all of that is tied to justification. Just about all of Galatians, all of Colossians, half of Ephesians, the middle of Philippians, all of Hebrews except the last chapter and a half the majority of two Corinthians, and according to Jesus, the whole Old Testament, and all, think with me, all the trouble that Paul had as he traveled through Asia Minor, that you can read it in the book of Acts, all of it was based on the fact that he was preaching the gospel. Paul was preaching that righteousness that you need only comes by faith in Christ. And the over 164 times that you read the phrase in Christ in your New Testament, I mean, that's an easy one to just kind of pass over quick. But when you do that, stop yourself. Because every time you read in Christ in your New Testament, that is the, the writer's way of, of a very, very shorthand of saying, when you laid down the arms of your rebellion and cried out to God to be merciful to you in your sin, he, because of the sacrifices of his son Jesus, pardon you immediately of all your treason. This is what in Christ means. And immediately he came to live with you. And immediately he adopted into your family. And immediately he imputed you the very righteousness, the perfect record of obedience of his son. And immediately you became righteous in God's sight. And that fact will never change. And immediately you received every conceivable blessing and promise and the treasures of your new father, Father God. So you received his presence, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, giftedness, security, a full, rich, meaningful life, identity as a human being made in the image of God, but now in Christ. Therefore, uncondemnable, <laughs> uncondemnable. And all of that in Christ was a merciful act of God. 
when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ. So when you see in Christ, it's like, So it's true, but only by faith. So first understand this. If the Bible is truly God's word, then obviously God is so concerned for our capacity to justify ourselves before him and before others and our inner person because of our own merits. We are warned all over the Bible, don't do that. And God knows us better than we know us. So he keeps warning us. Second, if God is God, then by rights, he alone can decide what needs to happen for us to be right with him. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer, but it needs to be said. He alone decides what is acceptable to be right with him. And third, if God is truly God, then, then he's unchanging, immutable. So it's a no-brainer. I mean, if you look at your Bible, Paul uses so much of the Old Testament to explain the New Testament. In fact, in the 11 verses that we just read, six times he quotes from the Old Testament to make his argument that righteousness is by faith. Okay? So that's not something new. It's something old. In fact, like it's Old Testament old. And he does that to make his point that the same God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, is the same God of the New Testament, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, verse 4, do you see it there? There is righteousness for everyone who believes in my son. So, two ways to live. Way number one, righteousness by your ability to keep the law perfectly. Verse five, the person who does these things will live by them. Paul's quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse five from the Old Testament. Again, future middle indicative, meaning that's your way of life. You pick that, that's the way you have to live. Righteousness by your works. So when you're doing good, you'll feel good. When you're doing bad, you'll feel sad. And your relationship with God will be like this. Perpetual obedience in the outer person, but also in the inner person. So not just for show righteousness, the external part, that's kind of easy. But righteousness before God, the internal part. And so if a person wants to be righteous, then then. Do what the law demands. Do it perfectly, absolutely, every detail of it, all the time. Now, if you know your Bibles, James kind of helped us here. James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Okay, now think with me. If it was possible for perfect obedience, then a person who only broke one law one time would remain just as lost and just as much unrighteous as a sinner, a person who failed at every point, every time, and keeping God's command. That's the logic here. You want to say, if you're listening, like, oh, mine. Okay, so think of it like this. Good dad. Good dad teaches his kids how to hunt, how to fish, how to drive, how to build stuff, how to read, yet has one sin on his copybook. James says, God says, that that person is just as guilty as a dad who kicks the dog, ignores the kids, you know, and gets liquored up just about every day. One is none. One act of disobedience counts for no obedience at all. 
That's, that's God. I mean, in your inner person, you're like fighting that. That's not right. That doesn't seem fair. That's God. And what that tells us then is that's not the number of sins that's really the issue, but sin itself. It is how sinful sin is. The essence of every sin is essentially man substituting himself for God. I mean, that's the essence of every sin. So even as Christians, when we sin, that's what we're doing. Now, clearly the Jewish people were, and other people like them, they were under a heavy deception. They were under a heavy, misguided, inflated view of themselves and their potential as a human. That's why, for one, if you read your Gospels, that's why they found it so easy to judge the Son of God. And I think all of us would admit that we are prone to relate to God and to relate to others and relate to ourselves through our personal obedience. But this is what the Bible says, Romans 3.10 and Romans 3.20. Romans 3.10, you know this one. There, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by, by the works of the law, rather Through the law, we become conscious, we become aware of sin. So the law was not meant for us to judge others, least of all ourselves. What the law does, it shuts the mouth, Romans 3.19, so that every mouth may be silenced. It was about a couple of months ago, I quoted from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said, a Christian is one whose mouth has been shut. Why? The law. The law. So Paul says, verse 5, if a person who pursues salvation by trying to keep the law, they'll be judged on the basis of that, of that effort. That's their code, their moral code, impossible to keep. They're in a horrible predicament. Now look at the Bible, verse 2. They're in a horrible predicament, which as incredible as it sounds, verse 2 tells us it's because of their own moral zeal. You, you got that? Not, not their immoral zeal. But their moral zeal. Don't miss that. So yesterday afternoon, my wife and I watched the Disney movie Cruella. Oh, it was good. It was really good. And that made me remind myself of some Disney movies. And I was thinking about Runyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. And I thought, okay, he wrote a lot of other books. And I did a little bit of research. And he also wrote a book called, um, what is the name of the book? Um, Let's see, I wrote it down here. Did I write it down? The Man Who Would Be King. And there's a classic quote in Man Who Would Be King. So two English military officers are leaving their duty in India. They go to a small village. They essentially want to make it their own nation. And so they go in with guns ablazing, and they have all these impressive things, and the people think they're gods. And in the line, when they left India to go conquer the world, they said, today my king is dead. And if I want a crown, I must go hunt for it myself. If I want a crown, I must go hunt for it myself. That is, in essence, what Paul is saying. If you want to be righteous, there's a way to do that. Go get it yourself. Be a go-getter. Have an impeccable, lifelong success in the moral struggle, and you can have eternal life. You'll never need forgiveness. Now, think. You'll never need forgiveness. You'll never really need to pray Right? Unless it's like the Pharisees in Luke 18. Remember the Pharisee when he prayed? He told God all the good he was doing, and then he told God all the bad that the tax collector was doing. But who went home right before God? 
What a, what a terrible, miserable way to live. Galatians 3.13, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So a long, long time ago, and our kids and I used to play this game. One of the names we called the game was Karate Joe. This is what we would do. I would ask them to do this to their dad. I would ask them to go pretend like they were going to punch me. So they would go, wah, wah, hence Karate Joe, excuse me. And I would go, whoosh, whoosh, right? So they would practice, wah, wah, and I would practice, whoosh, whoosh. and then we got a little fancy. And I would ask them to kick me, pretend like they're kicking me. And I'm not going to show you my legs, but they would kick me, whoosh, whoosh. and I would go, whoosh, whoosh. and we practice. We got really good at it. Whoa, whoa. Whoosh, 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 whoosh. It's great. And we would say, Nicole, come, come here, look at this. Whoosh, 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 whoosh. Eyes closed. Whoosh, 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 whoosh. It was fun. But it was all theater. Get it? In real life, it'd be like, whoa, Joe's dead. <laughs> That's the way of law keeping for righteousness. It's all theater. It's all theater. It's not real. Two ways to live. One is your unlimited obedience. The second is unlimited grace. Righteousness by faith. Verse six, the righteousness that is by faith. And that takes us to our second point, two professions to make. Verse six, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. So before Paul tells us what to do, he tells us what not to do. Verse 6, don't say in your heart, okay, who will ascend into heaven? That is to, to, to bring Christ down. That's the first thing. And the second thing, don't say who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, if you're thinking, and you read that, and you're not familiar with any of that, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, how does that have to do, what, what does that have to do with anything with the doctrine of justification and salvation? And I did that for about three hours on Thursday. But here's what happened. There's two ideas that Paul is trying to, to represent as a complete impossibility. One, okay, just as it's impossible for a person to be justified by law-keeping, it would be impossible for a human being to ascend into the highest heaven and drag the Messiah from heaven down to earth for their salvation. In other words, look at the text. And Paul is saying, you can't conjure up Christ. Okay? You, you, you don't, you can't conjure up Christ. Now, there's a lot of religions and sometimes even churches that that whole kind of conjure up idea is out there. So in the church level, it's like, okay, so if you sing really soft and you get real serious, then, you know, Christ will come down. It was in, during school time, I had to go to a lot of churches and I was in this one church for like three Sundays in a row and that's what they did. They sang real fast in the beginning, sang real slow at the end and then, and then it was like, everybody quiet, get, get quiet because we're gonna have a visitation. That was their words, not mine. 
And I talked to somebody after the church and I said, what was that? And he goes, well, we want to really get into the presence of God. Okay, I said, but well, aren't we already in the presence of God? They're like, yeah, we're in the presence of God. We're not really, really in the presence of God. So we sing real soft and we get real quiet and the presence of God comes. And I said to them, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. You see, Paul doesn't want his readers to go pagan on Jesus Christ and think that the way that a person gets access to God is the same way that the pagans get access to God. We just kind of baptize it and make it Christian and change the names. So the name of the deity, the avatar, the spirit, or the guide, we just change the names and put in Christ, and then that's what we do. Christianity is not like every other religion. There's no need for some, you know, mystical notions or striving or straining with superhuman effort or with mystical or esoteric stuff, secret passwords, secret behavior, a spiritism, Gnosticism, or even, in that context, Jewish genealogies. Because in the genealogies, there were like these secret passcodes and secret messages that they would call out. And if they called out and they got it right and broke the code and God would come down. Paul's like, you don't need to do that. To get to God. If you're familiar with church history, 18th century, the, the, the mourner's bench. It was really popular during the revival movements. And the mourner's benches was this. It was in the church, and there'd be like a bench over there. And the people who were ready to go meet Jesus, they, they would get on their knees and go to the mourner's bench. And if they did it right, they would experience Jesus and get their salvation. Conjure up Jesus Christ. Couldn't just do that in your seat. Couldn't do that outside the doors. You had to come in, hit, bench. A quote. When you went to the mourner's bench, the theology was this. Normal time, normal space, that gets gets suspended. You're now in sacred time and in a sacred space, earth goes to heaven. That is a complete denial of what Paul says here. It's a complete denial of John chapter 4. Remember, they always thought you had to go to a special place and do a special thing to meet with your God. Like That ended in Christ. You don't need to do that. And I'm not judging the people's sincerity at all. I'm just judging the necessity of it all. The only way that Messiah can descend from heaven is that the Lord God omnipotent sends him, and by golly, that's what he did. The Father sent the Son, and now the Son is here. The Son breaks into time. He breaks into space, into this world. He is our mediator. He is our substitute. He is our righteousness. He is our friend. He is our Savior, Christ in us. We don't don't go up. He comes down. That's one. Verse 7, 2. So it's also impossible for any human being by the strength of their own virtues of righteousness to go to the depths, if you would, to the abyss and bring Christ back from the dead. So what Paul is saying here is that just as it's impossible for a person to be right before God by keeping the law, it's impossible to think that we need to conjure up Jesus Christ, to think that we can bring him down or, or we grab him up. There's nothing to conjure up. There's no superhuman effort required to get to God. No impossible feats are required. It's not remote so that only a special group of people. No, anyone who needs it can have it. No special place, no special chant. We don't have to create an atmosphere for God to visit us. It is easily at hand. That's what Paul is saying. It's not reserved for, you know, the mystic, for the learned, for the specialist. And if you're thinking, if you know anything about church or church history, that is so counter-religious, sometimes even counter-Christian. 
All that Paul is saying here is that the gospel, the righteousness of God, is reserved for a person who tells Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. I can't stop sinning. That's what I said when I became a Christian. It's the first thing I said. I can't stop sinning. Nothing in my hands I bring, right? I approach the throne of mercy. Nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance of a good and gracious king. Why is that true? Look at verse 8. And by the way, it's just as true for the Christian, right? Why is it true that we don't have to conjure up no superhuman effort, no special place to go to to get to God? Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. You can read it like this. This is how it reads in the Greek. The alive word of God has been brought to you by God himself. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message converting faith that we preach. That word there, preach, is the word herald. This is from God through his mouthpiece, Paul, to the people. So you don't need to go on a pilgrimage to get to God. You don't need to have a special thing, a conjuring up thing, or some kind of religious feeling. It's not so high or so abstract or so deep or so profound that it's beyond the ability of anyone on this planet. It is near you. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's right in front of you. It's been brought to you. And there is an ease to this. I mean, if you read it as it is and accept it as it is, there's, there's a flow. There's an ease to it. All of it is on God. But wait, okay, it gets much easier. Now, if you look at your Bibles in verses 6 and 7, stay with me. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. If you go back and read Deuteronomy verse 30, 11 through 14, you'll notice that Paul left out something at the very, very end. He doesn't quote the last part of verse 14. And the last part of verse 14 reads like this. It is in your mouth and in your heart. He says that, but then it says, so that you can do it. That's not in the New Testament. It's in the old, but it's not in the new. Okay. Now, I want you to think with me, because this is apostolic authority. This is redemptive history. This is how we are to understand Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14 as a Christian. Okay? Now, the problem with the law is that no one kept it. None righteous, no, not one. So not even the best and the brightest of God's people, they did not keep the law in its entirety. So Paul says by apostolic right, he puts the earthly life of Christ and the risen life of Christ in the place of our obedience to keep the commandment. And that's the key to justification. That's the point of Romans 10.4. Do you see 10.4? Christ is the goal of the law, the culmination. He's the end of the law for righteousness then for everyone who believes. That's why the commandments are not too hard for you. They are not too hard for you because they were not too hard for Christ. And the Christian is in Christ. And God credits the obedience of Christ, who the law was not too hard for him to keep. That obedience he keeps, he gives to us. In other words, when Paul sees the Old Testament text, that's a pointer to Paul that says... Christ would be both our righteousness and he would be our sanctification. So Moses taught they have to be righteous. They have to be perfect, righteous, and he says it's doable. But then he also, and Paul says, 
but no one does it. And therefore, Paul says, Christ did. Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose, he perfectly obeyed for us, all those things. He credits that perfect obedience to us. And then because of that great justification, we are promised sanctification. And the one day, that one day of glorification, when the law will never be too hard for us to keep. Now, if you're listening to that, that means a lot. But one thing it means, when you read your Old Testament, or you hear an Old Testament sermon, if you would, and those blessing and curses passages, you know, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 28, if you do this, then God will do that. And if you don't do that, then, you know, it's hell's bells. You can read them and now think in Christ. In Christ, Jesus Christ has obeyed all of Deuteronomy 11 and all of Deuteronomy 28 and all of the law so that all those blessings now our mind, not, not by my obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus Christ. That means every Old Testament promise is ours. And doesn't the Bible say that? All the promises of God are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1.10, in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is ours, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, in Christ. So if you hear a sermon or a lesson or you're telling yourself, you read that and go, oh, I better, oh, I better, don't do that. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Thank God that Christ obeyed all that stuff for you. And now that righteousness has been imputed to you. Then all the promises now are yours. You did keep the law because Christ has done it for you. Verse four, you did it because he did it. You did it by faith. He did it by works. And therefore, Christ satisfies the law's demand. Verse 4, Christ is the culmination. He's the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And you see what Paul does there in that little paragraph, he helps us understand and how to see the Old Testament through the cross of Jesus Christ. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. So if someone tries to play the blessing and curse game with you, just take them to Romans 10 and tell them to stop. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. So there you go. Two things to decide. Verse 9, if you declare, confess, that's one with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, that's two, that God raised him from the dead. Confession, resurrection, uh, mouth and heart, believe and confess. External profession, your lips, internal profession, your heart. And by the way, why does Paul say heart and not mind? Well, the heart is always understood as the very essence of you. It's the true blue you. When a person speaks from the heart, there is integrity there. We say it all the time. I'm speaking to you from my heart. I want you to know my heart. And when you say that, you shouldn't question the person at all. And so when a person says from the heart, those things, we don't need to question it. Paul knows it's impossible for someone to have a persuasion in their, in their heart when it comes to Jesus Christ that's not true. If, if you, again, history, the Protestant movement, 15th century, the church at that time had, honestly, it's a Catholic church, had so much time with, with the Protestants proclaiming justification by faith. And what they said was, that's cheap grace. It's, it's too easy. Easy believism. You can't be saved by believing. You look at the text. 
Yes, you can. You believe in a person. Jesus is Lord. Curios, translated in the Septuagint, Yahweh, God. That's his claim to deity. You, Jesus is Lord. And then the resurrection, God raised him from the dead. Romans 4.25, you were raised to life for our justification. So we believe that he was raised from the dead, and thus that means he really died, and, and he really came to life. In other words, here we go back to the basics. Christ lived, and Christ died, and Christ rose. And we say that, and we believe that from the heart. And when the heart comes, it's total surrender. I mean, when you become a Christian, you totally surrender. So two professions to make, one with the lip, the other with the heart. The possession of faith in our profession of faith. Verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Final point, two ways to live. Law or faith righteousness. Two professions to make, lip and heart. Then finally, look at the graces to enjoy. So when a person confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their heart that Christ raised him from the dead. Verse 11, do you see it there? No shame. Verse 12, again to your Bibles, no difference. Verse 12b, verse 13, God richly blesses, beginning with your salvation. Now let's just walk through those and we'll be done. Maybe we'll run through them. In the world that we live in, people have to deal with a lot of shame. It seems like we're really good right now shaming people. We shame people in their behavior. We shame people in their appearance. We shame people in their possessions. We shame people in their status. We shame people in their intellect. Those are all the ways, or probably more, that all the ways a person could be shamed. And the law, the law of God can shame anyone, but not the Christian. Not the Christian. The word here, you, here means put out of favor, dismiss and discredit, or to bring reproach upon. God will not do those things to his own people who have his own son's righteousness given to them. He will not dismiss us. People will. He will not discredit us. People will. God won't. The gospel puts to death our shame. Because the Christian, now, the Christian will never be out of favor with God. I mean, that's how we like to think. When things go bad, you're out of favor. Things go good. Oh, we're back in favor. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. A dishonor to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's a great time for us to hear that as a church. We will never be put out of favor with our God. Period. No shame, no difference. Okay, no difference. The the cry of equality, again, is everywhere. It's a holy cry. I mean, I, the dividing lines are everywhere. And don't you grow weary of them? There was a song written in the 60s. I go to the movies. I go downtown. Somebody tells me, don't hang around. It's a cry, the social movement of the, of the black community. And then he says, but I know a change, change is going to come. 
It will, but it cannot ultimately come through the normal channels this world offers. Verse 12, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. This God is easily accessible, and he's easily accessible to everyone. And he gives the same blessing to everyone. That's the final word, rich blessing, to be enriched with all kinds of resources. That's the idea. God is so affluent in his resources so that he not only gives you eternal life, but he gives you the blessings of common life. All the tag-along promises that are needed on this earth and all the promises that will come past this life. I only have one point of application, and this is it. And please, please listen carefully. Every soul in the world has its own story of need. And I'm so glad I can say this. Every soul in this world has its own story of need. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ does not meet that need, nothing on this earth will. Nothing. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? Sees, sees heaven and he says, life, life, eternal life. That's ours in Christ. And a whole lot more. A whole lot more. Let's pray. Thanks for your attention this morning. God, we, we sang the song near the end, You Are So Good. How fitting. How fitting. We could honestly say, we are so bad. We are so bad. We could say that, and it would be true. But in Christ, it would be equally true. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. And you are. And we believe, God, with all our hearts, that if the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't meet a human need, then nothing on this earth can. So, Father, please, by your Spirit, work through these words. Apply what is needed and glorify yourself. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In Christ's peace. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen.